I want to start this morning just by uh, just talking about something completely unrelated to anything I'm talking about. That's the giggle of a baby. How cool is it when babies giggle? I just want to talk about that. You know that cute moment where you just hear kids, like little kids laughing? Isn't that a sweet sound? Such a sweet sound. There's a video, YouTube video, I haven't got it organised, but two chubby little twin babies sitting on these little vibrator exercise machines and they're both laughing. Cute little laughing. My wife watches it sometimes, and it, uh, I just think it's one of her most, it's her favourite things. It's kind of like, I don't know. My wife loves kids, just loves them, and so it's kind of like, <laughs> this isn't probably an appropriate metaphor for church, but it's just like heroin to that part of uh, her. She just absolutely loves it. Um, the reason I want to talk about that is... Um, this humanity and our lives on earth seem to have these beautiful textured mixtures of joy and of sorrow. Um, and in contrast to probably Christmas, the Easter story is actually just quite grisly uh, week after week. And as we approach, as we do this Lenten journey that we've been looking at in the church calendar approaching Easter, um, you know, I just want to just talk about a baby's giggle just, just to try and brighten things up, because we go a little grim today, um, so that's the only reason I threw that in. It's like Christmas is kind of like, you know, like when you go to the, well, we used to go to the video stores, yeah, when you, uh, when you look on whatever streaming and you've got romantic comedies, it's like Christmas is kind of that vibe. I don't know how we classify Easter then and what genre it would be, like it's not a comedy, like Shakespeare's sort of split, you know, comedies, good things happened and kept happening. Uh, in tragedies, bad things happened and then got worse. And it's kind of like as we approach the cross, that's the, the story that we see. Um, as well as that, there's kind of this psychological thriller element. Those things get really intense. And, um, and there's a bit of a plot spoiler for you guys. You know, Jesus actually dies. So. so why do we do it? Like, Why do we gaze upon uh, the death of Jesus? Why is it so important for the Christian narrative? I think... Um, Sam talked about it last week, um, but I found a fantastic quote uh, that helps answer that question. Why would we intentionally gaze into the realities of Christ's execution? Where is the, the victory or the joy uh, in that? And so this is by George MacLeod, uh, who I think is an Irish theologian. He says, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified but between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves. On a town garbage heap at a crossroad of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and Greek and in Latin. At the kind of place where cynics talked smut and thieves cursed and soldiers gambled. And that is what he died about. And that is where Christ's own people ought to be, and that is what church people ought to be about. There's something about the story of the cross that I think immediately charges our lives with a, um, a sense of the reality to be in this world, and not just for the good times, but to be in the world where people suffer and struggle. Sam said the other week, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. And the living should take this to heart. It's from Ecclesiastes, where Solomon was grasping at wisdom. 
And I think if the values of our church should be joy, peace, and depth, I wanted to urge you to pursue those things, uh, but it's impossible to do that without knowing Jesus. And these final words and actions of his life before his death exhibit so much of the character of God to us. And so for all of us, we can watch and learn so much from the horrible reality of people in their last moments on earth. My father once said to me that joy is a mix of infinite love and infinite sorrow. And uh, this is a wonderfully poetic thing for my dad to say. I, I have really found that to be true. My grandparents both died and, and that was a really you know, a horrible, a hard time in my life. But also spending time with them and hearing their, the things that they enjoyed about life and the things that they regretted allows us to gain, I think, from the wisdom and, and the reflections of people. So John Tyson, with his own son, walked a month through a cemetery and said, what do you see on these tombstones? And on the tombstones was the name of people, and then there was a date, and then there was a hyphen, and then there was a second date. And he said to his son Judah, your whole life is simply a dash between two dates. It's a breath. But what you're doing with that dash will count for eternity. So in these moments, let's consider Jesus on the cross. And there's going to be two important moments today, two separate stations that I'm going to deal with in two separate parts of my talk, where Jesus speaks Amazing words. And I think both of these give huge implications for how we orient our lives today. Uh, for those who are following the stations, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at two. There's stations, I think, 10 and 11. Let me first read from uh, Luke chapter, 30, uh, chapter 23, uh, beginning at verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they, know, uh, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our own deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So our first reflection on this is this. These first words of Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know what, not what they do. Um, I think it's just phenomenal. Brian Zahn goes to talk about this as being a, the lens with which he views the entire Bible. He argues that, well, he says that the Bible can be unwieldy to, to, to read. It can be confusing. At times it seems to be con contradictory. In fact, people have used it to justify all sorts of things, from slavery to war to uh, racism, hate crimes. And what we need to do is to find a center or to find a way to center our reading of the Bible. Um, 
And so what is the interpretive center, Brian Zahn asks. If we can read, if we can find that center of our sacred text, that we can read the rest of Scripture in light of that. And so where do we center our reading of Scripture? And Brian Zahn goes on to sort of, it's sort of like a game of, you know, warmer, warmer, warmer. He says the center is this. The interpretive center of Scripture is in the New Testament. It's in the Gospels. It's in the words of Jesus. It's at the cross. My interpretive center of Scripture is this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is so profoundly beautiful. From the lofty vantage point of Mount Calvary, from the cross Jesus hangs, dripping the blood of God into the dried dirt, surveying the worst of humanity. Yet still, with his arms open to absorb the sting of death itself, Jesus offers a prayer, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And the Christian should read the intentions and actions of God throughout the entire Bible in this way. Zahn writes this, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God was not like Jesus. So for us, church, when, what happens when we read the Scripture and indeed begin to change our outlook to the one that says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Let's really pause on this moment and imagine the scenario. Let's discuss what Jesus can see from his vantage point. What human actions does he see in his final moments? And what truths of humanity exist there? There's a few groups of people that are mentioned in this reading. And actually, just as I read that, there's a fourth, but I'm going to ignore that for now. I hadn't noticed it earlier. (laughs) So number one, he sees men dividing his clothes by casting lots. There's something about greed that seems to switch our eyes off the pain of others. That these men could ignore the groans and gasps of those dying around them while they divided the plunder and gambled for more wealth is a bit gut-wrenching. And I think it's also an acute picture of humanity at large. And so Jesus, the Son of God himself, watches in his final earthly moments as humans turn from compassion and turn their hearts towards their own selfish gains. Paul would later write in Ephesians 4 that they lost, this is speaking of humans in general, they lost all sensitivity and gave themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, for they are full of greed. And so Jesus, the human expression of God, looks. Number two, he sees men looking onwards. It just mentions that, that, that people watched. No one is mentioned as protesting the death or offering words of comfort. The people stood watching. And so the God of heaven looks in his final moments and sees the sad human truth that evil triumphs while good men do nothing. God in the flesh watches through swollen and bloodied eyes beneath a crown of thorns and a sign that reads the king of the Jews. Number three, it talks about rulers jealous of the status of Jesus and insecure in their own position of power, finding at least some agreement in the scorn for Jesus, and together they mock him. You saved others, yourself you cannot save, and so our God incarnate, the word made flesh, looks into the hateful eyes of people entrusted with power and authority, and he has nothing but the taunts 
over his own ragged breathing, he sees humanity's ongoing grasping for control and power and sees our ability to pull down others who lead. He sees our delight when those in high status are brought low. And this is what he's looking at in his final moments. He's looking at them. And I'd also say this, church. He's also looking at us. We all find ourselves burdened by sin. Like the soldiers, we find ourselves struggling with greed and growing calloused in our treatment of others. He's looking at us. Like the people watching and saying nothing, we find ourselves watching in silence. There's evil triumphs around us, and so often we should say something, anything, but we can't find our voice when even one voice will do. He's looking at us. Like the rulers who mock and curse, we too are jealous of our own, of their power and control to the point where the weaknesses and mistakes of our leaders bring us delight and amusement. He's looking at all of us. And his response that teaches us so much about God is this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And in that I find tremendous comfort that even in my naivety and in my brokenness and my blind spots, God still forgives. Even when I can't see that I'm being greedy and can't see that I'm being selfish and can't see that I'm being childish, God still forgives. Let's pause, let's stand and pray. Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbour. I'm praying this from the, uh, the Anglican prayer book. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word and deed by what we've done and by what we have left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbour as ourselves. Like these groups, Lord, we too have gained because of the downfall of others. We've too looked on quietly while others suffer, while evil triumphs. We too have mocked with our eyes, with our hearts and with our lips. Lord, we're truly sorry and we humbly repent. And Lord, for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And Lord, we also suffer from the sin of others. Like you, we feel the pain of being taken advantage of in moments of weakness. And like you, others have looked on us while we have suffered. Like you, others have mocked us and delighted in our downfall. And Jesus, when we look to you upon the cross, forgiving your murderers, we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. Help us to read scripture and live our lives in the light of this. Lord, in this beautiful moment where your very nature is revealed to us, we pray this prayer, Lord. Almighty God, have mercy on us. Forgive us in all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all your goodness and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Keep us in your eternal life. Amen.
All right, that's part one. Take a seat. Like I kind of promised you guys it was going to be quite heavy, eh? So I've got a knock-knock joke. No, it's a knock-knock joke. Why did the chicken cross? No. Why did the chicken go to the library? To get a book out? <laughs> it's just a palate cleanser before we get into more of the, uh, the other stuff. Like genuinely, the liturgical prayers aside, I had to think about the God who loves so much that he's praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I've been away with the school team this week and uh, teenage boys have huge blind spots. They don't recognise their own selfishness or silliness sometimes and uh, as I was reading up on some of these things, I just recognised in myself that uh, that grace to be able to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do is not easy. Um, constantly I was thinking they should know better. Constantly I was imagining... <laughs> I won't tell you what. <laughs> All right, for this next station of the cross, we read from John's Gospel, chapter 19. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull... Okay. Sorry. Sorry, I'm just going to check. I've copied and pasted a chunk of scripture. I might not have got that one right. So, just working out where John's gospel is. It's at the end, if you were lost. It's the end of the four gospels. The best gospel being Luke. Okay. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but this man claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shears, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. His garment was seamless, woven in the piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. When we think of crucifixion, I think we instinctively think of Jesus straight away, but the Roman Empire in truth crucified hundreds of victims. Uh, this is shown in the documentary, The Life of Brian. Um, <laughs> Jesus doesn't get his own stage for this moment of beauty, and I think that's interesting. Jesus is suffering as one of at least three that day. And I think this symbolism is beautiful. Christ who suffers among the suffering, not just Christ who suffers for the suffering. If you were suffering this morning, Christ shares with you in that. 
and is with you in that. God is not exempt from suffering, and rather, he shares in it. Again, this is from Brian Zahn. Brian writes, sorry, Mr. Zahn, writes uh, that often suffering seems pointless and meaningless, but it's a pointless, meaningless suffering shared by God and Christ. And once God is involved, it's no longer pointless or meaningless. By his stripes we are healed. Jesus shows solidarity with the sufferers. And the three crosses, I think, traditionally present us with this beautiful image of a choice. How we respond to Jesus determines everything. N.T. Wright and others note that at the heart of this, um, of Luke's depiction of this, um, and, and as, as well as that in John's, is this concept of Jesus as king of the Jews. And for Jesus' whole life, he's flipped upside down this concept of what it means to be a king. He's explained that the first will be last. He's celebrated with the sad. He's lunched with the lonely. He's hung out with the hopeless. And he hasn't acted like anyone's idea of a king. And when his royal cupbearer finally does come, it's a Roman soldier offering him the sour wine that poor people drink. And when his crown does come, it's a crown of thorns smashed into his head. And, and finally, when he's, when he's hailed as a king, it's only in cruel mockery. And today I want to ask you the question, how do you feel about Jesus as king? Jesus is crucified between two criminals who show a huge contrast in their answer and attitude towards this question. And according to, I found this interesting, according to church tradition, the first criminal is thief Gestus, or Gestus. I'm going to go with Gestus. And the second is Saint Dismas. So we've got Dismas and Gestus. And Saint Dismas obviously has um, got the name Saint for his um, words. And he's been held up and celebrated in church tradition as making the right choice. And so when they see the sign, the king of the Jews, one taunts and the other accepts. Jesus seems obsessed with scapegoating. If you're the king, save us and yourself. Again, we can hear in this the echoes of uh, Satan's temptation in the wilderness. If you're the Christ, command these rocks to become bread. Immediately take control. Get what's yours. Fight back, the man says. And get me out of here. And the other rebukes Jesus and proclaims Christ's innocence. Reading from verse 40, But the other criminal rebuked him, Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And this is beautiful. This is a heart reflecting in the moments before death and seeing before them a man suffering but a man innocent. Something about Jesus' conduct convinces him. Whether he knew of Jesus prior to this, it's unclear. And then he says this, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. So he accepts and is convinced that the sign, the king of the Jews, written by a cynical pilot, saying, you know, and this really upset the Jews, right? They were annoyed because they wanted to they, they, they wanted to just get the little marker up there and make sure that it clearly said, no, he only claimed it. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've all written. 
And there's something profoundly prophetic about this little accident, this little mistake. The king of the Jews, in three languages. And I guess you can look at this and and read from it a few things. And I want to encourage you to just allow me a little bit of lenience here. Because I want to press a little towards our own hearts this morning. I read this once by a guy who writes all sorts of prophetic things. And recently I largely ignored everything he's written, but this one hung out in there as something quite beautiful. And he wrote that Jesus was crucified between two thieves yesterday and tomorrow. One was so obsessed with the sin of his past and the hurt of his past that the only voice he could master was one of revenge. He could only look at the things that were no longer in his control. And that can be us when we are stuck, regretting and wishing that the past was different. Uh, As I said, I've been away with the team for futsal this week. And we lost against a team we should have beaten. They weren't as strong as us. And we simply didn't play well enough to win the game. And again, I found it profound that after the game, all the students wanted to do, and even the parent supporters wanted to do, was talk about the referees' wrong decisions. And all they wanted to do was talk about how the opposition got lucky, and all they wanted to do was to talk about how, when they were by themselves, moan about the other people in their own team who had made mistakes. And that's kind of a little bit useless, because none of those things are actually in those people's power. They're not in their area of influence, and I feel like that can be us a lot of the time. Complaining about the government, complaining about stuff that's going wrong in the world around us, complaining about stuff that we are quite safe in knowing we have no way of changing. And it can feel good to vent and complain and, contr- and, and whinge about stuff that actually we can't do anything about, including our past hurts, right? And so Zahn says this, Brian Zahn says this back to him, when we deal with the fear and anger, our pain and shame by blaming others, we achieve union with the purposes of Satan, and that keeps us locked down in our own self-imposed howl. And so that's just, what's his name? Justice. That's justice. That's the, the guy who was representing yesterday. And the other guy, Dismas, he was different. But even in his story, it's clear that Jesus has a message for him. He was filled with regret. And I wonder what had happened to this man. Again, we see not only do we suffer from sin as the perpetrators of it, as the doers of sin, but we also suffer because we've been sinned against. There's an old saying that says, hurt people hurt people. We're stuck and trapped in a cycle where bad stuff happens and causes us to to react in bad ways. And as Paul writes in Romans, who who will free us from this? And so we're freed from this cycle of sin by by none other than Jesus and none other than this moment. And so I wonder what's happened to this man's life. All he hopes for is that when Jesus comes into his kingdom, in some future time, that Jesus will remember him. 
And Jesus' comforting words to him is also a huge challenge to him. Because we know this, Jesus has said throughout the Gospels, my kingdom is at hand. He says it so often. And he says, stop looking for a future kingdom. My kingdom is here. And so uh, God's kingdom's started. It's begun. And so Jesus says this, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus comforts the suffering with a promise of a better future. And look, in this, there's like huge doctrinal implications for heaven and things, right? So lots of people look to this as... um, such a wonderful proclamation of the hope of heaven. And I am so glad for it. I'm so glad for life after death. I'm so glad that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. I'm excited by that. I love that. It's our Christian hope. And there's also this issue. The perception for many of us is that God's kingdom can only be experienced in the future. And the thief on the cross next to Jesus had a hope for this. The best he could hope for was to be remembered when Jesus came into his kingdom. And Jesus utters something so beautiful, and he asks, what about today? Today you'll be with me in paradise. So I want to ask you, what if God really was to meet with you today? And what if you've been holding off hoping for God to to do anything really, even in this life? What if you've given up on hope a little bit? And what if Jesus is saying, what about today? And so uh, this morning I want to ask you, are you like justice? Are you like the frustrated criminal who has blamed and complained and has struggled to see Jesus as a king because of the past? Are you accepting Jesus' invitation to you this morning? Are you able to go to God and deal with the things that you cannot control? Uh, Or are you like St. Dismas? Are you worn down? Are you beaten down? Are you willing to believe that the kingdom of Jesus could come through one day, but it's just a little too much for today? Now, in either case, the kingdom of Jesus is here. And the power of God is here to touch your life. And so um, I want to pause for a moment again and invite him to come into our present circumstances. And I want to ask the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, to be with us. Again, let's pause. I'd ask you to stand and I'll pray.